welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm pleased to be joined today by my guest, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Deacon Harold is a 1988 graduate from Notre Dame and is well known in the Catholic world as the dynamic deacon, and so we'll get into that and a lot of his history, but Deacon Harold, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and privilege to talk to you. We like to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were some important memories of your childhood that you could share with us? Well, I was born in Barbados in the West Indies. Okay. Uh, We're first generation to come to the United States. My father was a, a very successful singer and nightclub owner, and he also was a touring musician. And my mother was a a nurse, cardiac care nurse. Mm -hmm. She trained in England. And um, I was born there, and my brother was also uh, born there in Barbados. We immigrated to the United States when I was about three years old to uh, New Jersey. And that's where uh, where we grew up. My mother is the first Catholic in our family. She was a Methodist who became Catholic. And uh, if, uh, how, how that happened was um, she went to a Catholic school and someone from her class invited her to go to church with her one day. And so uh, my grandmother said it was okay. And so she went and my mom kind of fell in love with the, with the Catholic faith and, you know, the beauty of the church and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So she became Catholic as a teenager. I'm the oldest child. And so I was the, I'm the first baptized Catholic in my family. Of course, mm-hmm. my mom, when she came into the church, didn't have to be rebaptized. Right. You know, just a, a confirmation and, and for, and Holy Communion. And so I'm actually the first baptized Catholic. I was baptized a couple of weeks after I was born. And uh, my mom was very devout. My father, on the other hand, <laughs> had just <laughs> complete opposite, had really okay. no faith at all. In fact, he didn't, he didn't even come with us when we moved to the U.S. He didn't join us until almost a year later. Mm-hmm. And uh, very tumultuous marriage. My dad resented having to, to leave his lifestyle mm. uh, in Barbados to come come to the U.S., but you know, eventually he made the best of it. But it was still a, a rough marriage. Mm-hmm. And my mom ended up divorcing him. Mm. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm asked by young people sometimes, what is it like to be a child of divorce? Yeah. And because uh, they, they, they're not stupid, they can see something's going on in their family and they're sure. they're thinking that it may come to that. Yeah. So I tell them, I said, marriage is a beautiful thing. It really is. But it's also the cross. And divorce is when the parents put the cross down and mm. the kids pick it up. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I tell married couples all the time, that's not a place you ever want to be mm-hmm. because uh, someone always going to get hurt. and It's going to be the kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So but we we made it. We made it through that. And then we moved from our home that, that really the only home I don't, I've ever known to another city after the divorce. But d- during all that, my mom, again, was very devout. And I felt a pull, a tug, an attraction to the faith. I remember nine years old going to mass with my mom and my siblings. And, uh, you know, I, I would, she would put me on the end of the of the pew by the aisle mm-hmm. and she would stand next to me and my siblings would be on the other side. I have another brother and sister who are born in the here in the US. And she would they would sit on the other side of my mom because they were typical kids, you know, throwing Cheerios at each other and right. stuff. <laughs> but I was laser focused on what was going on at the altar. Hmm. And so my mom created some separation so I could focus. And yeah. I, I remember thinking there's something really cool going on up there. I'm not mm-hmm. sure exactly what it is, but I like it. Mm-hmm. You know, and ever since then, I thought I might have had a vocation, you know, the priesthood. I remember when I started serving mass. Sure. It was awesome. I loved serving mass. I loved being on the altar. And I remember one time in particular, it was my turn to ring the bells and father was about to elevate the host. And I remember clearly thinking in my mind, I could totally see myself doing that. You know what the priest is doing. Sure. It was great. And I had a had a conversation with a priest because I, I still really like girls. So I'm thinking, <laughs> how can I be a priest? Because I can't get married. So right. what you know, what about the girl thing? And I remember in eighth grade going to talk to my parish priest. Uh, it was summer. And I remember walking to the parish from my house, which is a couple of miles. And um, 
sitting down with Father on the porch, on the front steps outside the parish. And it was the most unhelpful conversation I think I've ever had with a priest. Hmm. Yeah. And come to find out that this priest ended up being a pedophile. Oh, wow. And so I, 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 my guess is I wasn't his type. And that's why he probably didn't pay much attention to me. But huh. I ended up going to high school, St. Benedict's Prep in Newark. And they had a come and see program for monastic life there. And right. I, I did it all four years. And I was convinced that after my senior year in high school, that I was going to join the monastery. Yeah. And I eventually did. Huh. Wow. Well, that's a great summary for us. Thanks for sharing so many important moments. Uh, returning to this this topic of being a child divorced and kind of the suffering, how did your faith help you through some of that and through some of the outcomes where you kind of the upheaval you experienced with your family and probably that you saw your mom suffer more than you would have wanted her to, those kinds of things? Yeah. So I'd say a couple of things. I definitely learned the meaning of sacrifice from my mom. Mm-hmm. That, that's for sure. She worked the graveyard shift at Beth Israel Hospital in Newark, again, in the cardiac care unit. She worked 11 to 7. Mm-hmm. And so ba- a typical day would be she'd come home from work. She'd get off at 7 o'clock. And in my job as the oldest child was to make sure that everybody was up and that their lunches were ready and mm-hmm. that they were ready to school, so ready for school. So when my mom honked the horn on the car, we'd come out and, and she'd take us to school. And she would come home. She would uh, sleep, get up and make dinner. We'd come home from school. We'd have dinner together, and then she'd go to bed. And then I took over. Hmm. And I had to make sure homework was done. The kitchen was clean. Took messages. You know, that yeah. <laughs> I'm dating myself here, right? Back before answer <laughs> machines and all that sure, stuff. We had to actually sure. write down messages from the phone and, <laughs> and all of that. And, but the most important thing was to make sure that my mom didn't sleep through her alarm. Right. So before I could go to bed, I had to make sure not only my mom, that I heard the alarm, but that my mom was up and walking around before I went to bed. And I, and I couldn't let her sleep past like 10, 20 mm. or something like that. We didn't live that far from the hospital. So it only take her like 10 minutes to get there. But so I had to make sure. And that was kind of a daily routine. And so I basically helped take care of the family. But and, and so I don't I don't resent that for a couple of reasons. One, I saw my mom go to, now that was back in the days when, when the uh, nurses wore those white pressed uniforms with the starch hat and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the white stockings and white shoes. And, and, and I remember my mom going to work with holes in her shoes and, wow. and large runs in her stockings because we needed stuff. And her big thing was, was education, education, education to, to get out of the situation we were in. We grew up in a I, I, in the hood, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the best way to describe it. And so the the way out of that situation, my mom, for my mom was education. So, and for her Catholic education, so grade school, high school, and for me, college and graduate school were all at Catholic institutions. Um, and, and that, that definitely came from my mom. And so that, that would, that would be one thing I would say. The second thing was when I got to high school, you know, um, without a dad there, I, there were there were teachers there because uh, it was all boys school. There were teachers there that I wouldn't say took the place of my dad, mm-hmm. but sh- but showed me kind of what masculinity was was about. And so there were teachers there that pushed me and challenged me. Uh, one of them, in particular, my wrestling coach, Mr. Mike D. Piano Senior, who was a huge influence on me. A number of the other teachers, the monks, of course, when I was living in and out of the monastery in their come and see program were very influential. My scoutmaster, Dr. Alan H. Tobe, who was a podiatrist <laughs> who lived in the uh, suburbs, but came every Monday night to be with his boys, as he called us, you know, and he was tremendously influential. So there were, there were many men who I learned authentic masculinity. And, you know, I didn't resent the fact that, you know, I had to kind of take over things at home with my mom uh, because I learned about structure and organization and responsibility, all that have served me very, very well in my life after after uh, high school. And so I, I had a great, I ended up having a really great experience uh, for my four years there before going off to Notre Dame. And, you know, I'm the first person in my family also ever to go to college. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what changed things for me was I remember 
my very first grade in high school was history. And the teacher was, was Mr. Frank Mullen. And Mr. Mullen was handing back our first exam. So here I am, 14-year-old freshman. And I studied, you know, and I'm nervous because my, ver- you know, high school, different than grade school, is supposed mm-hmm. to be harder, you know. And sure. so I, I, I was playing on working hard. And I, he was walking up and down the aisles of the desk, turning papers over. And he turned my paper over on my desk. And he kept walking. And I remember turning the paper over and seeing B+. And I audibly said, yes. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Mullen stopped walking. I'll never forget this. <laughs> he stopped walking. Then he backed up and he looked me in the face, my little 14 year old self in the face. And he said, and you're happy with that? Huh. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I got a B plus. That's pretty <laughs> good. You know? And I, and I remember going home and I was so proud to show my mom my hey, mommy, look, my first grade, you know, it was B plus. And then I told her what Mr. Mullen said. And she said, no, son, you don't understand. What he's saying is you could do better than that. And up until that point, no one really pushed me or challenged me to be more, to do more, to go beyond expectations. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, my mom did, but other than my mom, he, that was the first experience I had. And I, and I, and I, that, that, flipped a switch in my mind and I thought wow you know maybe maybe I can do more maybe I can you know and it just it just changed something in me hmm. and so I ended up being a pretty a pretty good student and I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college and how I got to ND was an, again one of those influential men in my life uh, Father Mark Payne who was a monk who's also a, a grad of physics graduate of Notre Dame hmm. and our school had a lot of kids of color. And so he wanted to take what he thought were some of the more talented kids academically. And he, and he drove us to Notre Dame. Hmm. And uh, I remember we spent the night in Cleveland at his grandparents' house and then went to, got to Notre Dame the next day. And I remember touring around and walking through campus and thinking, Hey, I can see myself here, you know? And so we, we went back to Newark and I applied and I got in. And I was like, wow, okay, because I had Rutgers and Columbia and Notre Dame. And so I opted to go to the Catholic school, you know, because my, my faith was very important to me. I was thinking seriously of becoming a monk. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, what better place to kind of help foster my vocation and learn more about the faith than Notre Dame? And uh, that's how I ended up going, going to ND. And once you got here, what was your experience like, not only growing in your faith, but also socially, academically, emotionally, all those things that we hope for as we form our students here? Yeah, so uh, I had an awesome experience. I was at Holy Cross Hall. So at first I thought, which of course is not there anymore. It was uh, uh, up on the hill on the way to 31, the St. Mary's. But one thing, you walk out of our hall, the grotto is right there. So every single day you walked out of the hall, bam, you're, you're looking right at the grotto. You know, it was awesome. And at first I was like, oh man, I'm way out there. You know, that door, I'm all the way out there. You know, at least it wasn't Carol. (laughs) (laughs) But people joke back then there was North Quad, South Quad, and the Lake Quad. Uh You know, so uh, we were in the Lake Quad dorm. And so, but I formed some incredible friendships. In fact, there are guys in that dorm that that are in my wedding. And then they're still some of my closest and dearest friends to this very day. And we talk to each other regularly, you know, and, and I travel quite a bit speaking. So I get the chance to actually see them That's great. on a regular basis. You know, in fact, I just saw one, one of my good friends, Kevin Kane, who was um, in the Glee Club uh, at ND and uh, also a, a good friend of mine in the dorm. I just saw him last week in Chicago. Yeah, so that was great. And academically, you know, it was challenging in the beginning. I had emo, sure. you know, for, <laughs> for chemistry and um you know, and, and so I, I thought maybe I'd be a biology major. But then I ended up switching to economics and, well, it was ALPA back then. It was called the Arts and Letters Program for Administrators. So you major in something in the School of Arts and Sciences and then minor in business. And so I did that because, um, and the monks thought it was a good idea because I was kind of slated to be the business manager of the monastery. I see. And so I uh, ended up majoring econ ALPA. Four years I played guitar 
in the jazz band, in the in the B band, not the A band. There's a guy named Scott Tallarita at that time who was the the A guitarist. I was the B guitarist. <laughs> but uh, but I also played in a band called The Groove. Played guitar. It's very popular campus band. We played at La Fortune and uh, Theodore's. I don't think it's still there anymore, but it was like a, kind of like a little nightclub, I guess you would say, on the second floor of La Fortune. And we did a lot of gigs there. We we gigged um, at a number of places in town as well. And uh, yeah, so we, we had a lot of fun playing in the band. And I also sang in the Voices of Faith Gospel Ensemble sure. uh, as well. And I uh, had a, had, really had a tremendous experience uh, for four years. I had no desire at all to live off campus, you know, because there's no fraternities in ND, but the dorms are kind of like your, your family kind of your frat quote unquote so to speak I was no there was no hazing or no you know kind of initiation rituals but and especially being as far out as we were from the main part of campus you know we we got a real close bond of, of friendship and camaraderie during those four years and you know I just had I just had an amazing time even well my wife also graduated she's an ND 88 ND grad she lived in BP okay but we didn't actually, well, we met once at school. <laughs> we, we didn't really know each other at school, although we had mutual friends. And we met actually at this mutual friend's wedding several years after graduation. But we, <laughs> it's, got a, actually, it's a really funny story how we, how we ran into each other the, the very first time. It was our junior year. And my RA, Ed Hanairo, was heading to Pittsburgh. He had borrowed another friend of ours' car, uh, his borrowed his car, Jose's car. And he was supposed to drive to Pittsburgh. And so he told me, because I was working for the police department in Notre Dame. I was an intern my sophomore, junior, and senior year. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, I'm leaving, going to Pittsburgh. He goes, I'm taking Jose's car. So make sure no one goes in my room. I said, no problem, Ed. I got you covered. And so I came back from working out at The Rock. And I was walking to the shower. I lived in a single. I was walking to the shower. And I, all I had was a towel around me. And I noticed that Ed's door was open and the light was on. I'm like, hey, who's in Ed's room? So I go in there and there's Ed standing there. And this girl was sitting on the couch. <laughs> and I'm like, Ed, I, I thought you were leaving. What happened? He goes, oh, man, the oil light came on. And so we pulled over to the side of the road and looked underneath the car. And his oil was leaking. So we turned around and came back. I said, we? He goes, oh, yeah, let me introduce you. And there was Colleen, my, my future wife, sitting on the couch. <laughs> now, they weren't dating or anything. She... Her family's from Pittsburgh, and so she just went to, was kind of catching a ride with him. To pick, and so that was the first time I met her. I was naked with just with a towel <laughs> on. That's the first time I, I saw her. And so I, I did, we didn't really see each other until Ed's wedding. That same guy, uh, his wedding several years after graduation, we, we saw each other there and said, you kind of look familiar. And then we remembered that, that incident. And so we laughed about it and became friends and hmm. started dating and eventually got married. After I left the monastery, that is. <laughs> That's great. So we should return there first. What was your discernment experience like both at Notre Dame and beyond, including how you eventually figured out that that wasn't the life that God was calling you to? Yeah, so um, at ND, it was, it was actually good because I, I had um, spiritual director, spiritual director, my, my rector, actually, Father Pat Sullivan, mm-hmm. was uh, the rector of the dorm at that time. And so I went to him for spiritual direction about my calling, uh, the calling that I, I believe I had the monastic life. And so after, during my, and I, like I said, I interned for the police department my sophomore, junior, and senior year. Uh, in fact, I helped start the uh, student's security program, the student safety program, which is uh, which I, it's still in place today. I see. So <laughs> in a little legacy I left there, I guess, on campus. And hmm. So I, I was offered a full-time job my senior year. Right at the beginning of my senior year, I was offered a full-time job with the police department. So I said, okay, so here I am discerning monastic life. This would be a good chance to have an apartment and own a car and pay bills and that kind of thing. And and also discern for another year. So I, I lived off campus, worked for the police department full-time, and still went to Father Pat for spiritual direction. Hmm. Then after a year on campus, uh, another year working full-time, I decided to join the monastery and began the process, was accepted and, and was there. And I, I really, really enjoyed it, actually. And I honestly I had no intention of leaving. 
and I was again very happy, um, except for getting up like oh dark thirty in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't a morning person at that time for sure. <laughs> um, but I but I did it, you know, because the other novices were also doing it, and uh, it was great. And I was there for a couple of years, and then my mom got sick and almost died. Hmm. And so when she was in the hospital, my siblings called and said, "What do we do?" And I said, "Well, I." I'm in a monastery now. I said, I, I, I can't, you guys have to take care of it. And they ended up, so I said, come to mass this evening. So we had, we had our, our daily mass at, at 5 PM. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, they came to mass and then the abbot, and I went and saw my mom after that in the hospital. She was on, you know, kind of life support then. Mm. So I went back to the monastery. The abbot gave me three months out of the monastery to take, and when my mom, eventually she did recover Mm -hmm. and so at that time the abbot gave me three months out of the monastery to take care of my family take care of my my mom and my sister who was still in high school at the time Hmm. so she had to eat and get to school and i had to pay the bills and stuff so i i did that and it was that second month out of the monastery that i went to ed's wedding Hmm. and met colleen there okay and that's when we rekindled this little interest. And, but I, of course, I was going back to the monastery because you know, I, I wasn't planning on leaving. You know? and, so, and she was living in Connecticut at the time, and I was in New Jersey. And so when we got back to the East Coast, because you know, the wedding was in Seattle, we got back to the East Coast. She called me, and I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I said, I, I, I'm going back. I said, I'm a monk. I have to go back to the monastery. And yeah. So I, I, after three months, I did attempt to go back. But my mom wasn't fully convalesced enough to go back to work. Hmm. And so they were like, look, you can't split your time between home and monastic life. So, you know, why don't you stay out longer till your mom goes back to work and then come back? I said, "Okay, cool. But while I was out that extra time, I went on a date (laughs) with Colleen. I went on a second date. Then I'm like, okay, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> so, right. so eventually I didn't go back to the monastery and, and continued to date her. And uh, I, I guess the rest they say is history. You know, she, right. she, she eventually went back. She, she um, went to California to go to graduate school and I stayed because I was working as a detective. When I, so when I left monastic life, I got back into law enforcement um, because I had such a good experience at, with the Notre Dame police department. So I thought, Hey, maybe I could do this as a career. So I, Ended up joining a, de- a department and um, becoming a detective. And I was working a drug case, so I couldn't just up and leave. And so Colleen left and I stayed, which was good because I needed to discern what, you know, how serious is this relationship? Am I willing to move across country sure. to pursue this? You know, what am I going to do? And so I eventually did decide after the case was over, I did decide to leave and go out to California where I lived in another uh, monastery there, Woodside Priory in um Portola Valley, California, right near Palo Alto, not to join that community, but to discern, should I go back to Newark or should I continue to be in this relationship? And so after being there about six months, Mm -hmm. I did discern marriage. So Colleen and I got married. We lived in California for another year while she finished her third year or her practicum after graduate school. And then we moved to Oregon where we still live now. Okay. And have uh, been there ever since. And so when we moved to Oregon in 1995, I still felt a pull. I still felt an attraction. Something in my life wasn't complete. Right. So I said, okay, well, I, I left the monastery. I got married. What else is there? And so in, so ni- we, we moved in August of 95. In April of 96, it was, East, it was the first Easter vigil. And so during that mass... I heard a call to the diaconate hmm. and I said, well, wait a minute, this is odd because I'm married. And cause remember the only deacons I've ever known were guys in the monastery that were going to, they were going to become priests. Right. Transitional deacons. Yeah. 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 Transitional deacons. So I went to my pastor and I, and I, and I asked him about it. He goes, Oh, you make a great deacon. I said, I, I can't, I'm married. He goes, no, no permanent deacon. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so he went in the sacristy and he got a copy of, of uh, the documents of Vatican II. We looked up Lumen Gentium, sure. paragraph 29. Mm-hmm. And it said, at the lower end of the hierarchy is the deacon. I read that paragraph. I said, that's it. That's exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I knew it. Hmm. You know, and so I, I, was, I was pretty young. I was 30 years old. Okay. And, uh, but I was accepted into the program. I had to wait a year because there was no class that year in 96. And so I, I joined the 1997 cohort. 
and it's five years of formation, including three years of getting a master's degree, which I did from the University of Dallas, mm -hmm. and uh, was ordained a deacon in uh, November 23rd, 2002. Great. And I know that in the permanent diaconate program for the candidates who are married, the wife is also involved in the discernment process. So what was your wife's reaction to this idea and her experience as part of it? Well, she has always been extremely supportive. Mm -hmm. And we were in a very interesting situation. I am the youngest person they've ever ordained in the history of the Archdiocese of Portland. Uh, I was I was just turned 36 years old. Okay. So when I started the program, I didn't meet any of the requirements. I wasn't married long enough. You know, I, <laughs> you know, there's a certain requirements in canon law that you have to meet at the time of ordination. And I didn't meet any of the requirements. I wasn't old enough. I wasn't married long enough. I didn't, you know. Yeah. And so along the way, she'd always been supportive. She knew about my monastic experience, obviously. And she knew that, that I was still feeling something, you know, that God was calling me to something. Uh, and so we, and we also didn't have any kids at that time when, when I first started, but <laughs> after five years, we had two kids, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and she was pregnant with twins. <laughs> and so that raised some red flags, obviously, with the people on the diaconate board, not only because of my age being as young as I was, but also at the age of our kids. So we ended up meeting with a special meeting with the, with the bishop. Arch with the Archbishop, and it was it was a it was a very good meeting. So he was like, "Look, I looked at everything. I understand the concerns that the board has because of your age and the age of your kids, but I can see you guys as being a wonderful example of family life. And if we waited till all the guys were older and the kids were older, then we'd be ordaining old men. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm going to go ahead and ordain you." But he put a provision in there for us to go and he gave me, he, he told me early where my assignment was going to be. And he told me and Colleen to go and talk with the pastor of the parish and figure out how this is going to work. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, and it did work as long as I listened to my wife, <laughs> you know, seriously. I mean, yeah, she knew what the balance was between my home life and my, and my work life and my parish responsibilities as a deacon. So as long as I listened to her, about when to be home and when to balance things, everything worked out fine to this very day. Mm -hmm. You know, as, and, I, and really, I, cause I believe the Holy Spirit speaks through her. And if I don't listen to her, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and so she's always been supportive. She, and today, to this very day, she's still very, very, very supportive. And that's the only way I'm able to balance everything is because of her love and support. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a beautiful gift that you have in your life, in your ministry, in your marriage. I know that often permanent deacons have different jobs and do the permanent diaconate on the side, so to speak. But for you, this really grew into a full-time ministry as a deacon. So could you tell us some about that path and that journey? Yeah. So when I moved to Oregon, I became the director of safety, public safety, for at, uh, uh, at the uh, Salem Kaiser School District, so I was in charge of police services, the school resource officers, and and uh, security related matters. And then, as a, a very actually uh, a very interesting Notre Dame connection here. Mm -hmm. So I was working at the school district from 1995 until 2001, and in 2001, in the uh, it must have been February, I got a call from Rex Raycow, who was the police chief at, at Notre Dame. Sure, I remember Rex. Yeah, and, and so Rex said, hey, Harold, there's an opening at the University of Portland for the director of public safety. I think you'd be great for that job. You should apply. University of Portland. So I come to find out it's a Holy Cross school. Right. And that the president at that time was Father Tyson, David Tyson. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember Father Tyson from Notre Dame. Right. You know, I say, hey, okay. So I got excited. And so I, I went there and I applied, interviewed, got the job. And so I started there in um, May of, of 2001. And so I worked there for 11 years. It was, I think it was the greatest professional experience of, of my life as far as secular career, mm -hmm. because it, it was really wonderful how we focused in, in my department. We were under student services. In fact, <laughs> Dr. John Goldrick 
was my boss. Mm-hmm. And he and he was the admissions director at Notre Dame. In fact, his name is on my acceptance letter from Notre Dame, which wow. I still have to this day. Huh. Yeah. And his name's on my letter. And so, of course, I knew who he was, too. And he ended up being my boss. And he was a great boss. He was I, I, he was feared. Uh, all the students feared him <laughs> when we were at Notre Dame. Right. But working for him as a senior manager in his in his di- division at the University of Portland was a was a phenomenal experience. And all of us were so tied into the Holy Cross mission and everything that we did. And I saw my my responsibilities there. Like, look, these students, they're 18 to 21 years old. Their adult clothes are too big for them. They're going to spend four years trying to fit into their new adult clothes. And so when they do that, they're going to make mistakes. They're sometimes really big mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I saw ourselves as in, in our department of public safety as mentors for our students. Yes, they're going to get an education, a first-class, world-class education at the University of Portland. But they're also going to learn from the classroom of real life. And that's what I wanted their interactions with my officers to be. Um, so I didn't want my officers to treat them like like suspects or like perpetrators, but to help these students take responsibility for their actions, to be able to make mistakes in an environment where they can learn and grow from those mistakes before they left UP and went on to a, a professional career and made a mistake that would cost them a job, a career, sure. a family, a reputation. Mm. And so that's how I saw our interaction with students there, to learn from the classroom of real life. And I had some very powerful moments with students because of those interactions. One in particular, I got a call from a sheriff's department in Eastern Oregon, where this particular student was from. Hmm. And they were investigating a case of fraud where a, uh, a credit card, this was a, at a Target department store where a customer's credit card was used for online pornography. Hmm. And so they had investigated the case and determined that the card was stolen and was used by a student who was at UP. Hmm. So they asked me if I could do the interview, if they sent me the file. I said, absolutely. So they sent me the file and I sat down with the student and his, and his hall director and explain the situation. Of course, the student lied because they all do. <laughs> and but eventually, I, I put I put enough evidence in front of him where he couldn't deny it. Yeah. And he did admit it. And so I he wrote out the um, confession. I, I put it back in the file. I sent it back to the sheriff's department, and he he got a summons to appear in court. And when he got that summons, he called me. He was scared to death. He had never been through anything like this before. Sure. He was he had to drive to, to Eastern Oregon to appear before the court before the judge. He was scared. So I said, okay, look, I'll go with you. Hmm. So me and his RA went, drove out to Eastern Oregon with him. He appeared in court. And so he got a public defender. And when the judge read the charge, how do you plead? He pleaded, he pleaded not guilty. But then he the, the judge uh, wanted him to get processed. And so I raised my hand and the judge recognized me. And I said, look, I told him who I was and I, I come here with this young man. So I'll take him over to jail, get his fingerprints, get his photo. And if you release him to my custody, I will make sure he comes back for his court appearance. Mm-hmm. The judge slammed the gavel and said that was fine with him. So I took him to County, got his fingerprints and mugshot, And then we had a very, Interesting. It was a three-hour drive mm. back to Portland, so we had a very long, very interesting conversation. So, end up that he was a first offense, and and every you know um, the lady ended up not pressing charges. So he got probation. I mean, so it ended up working fine. But I'll never forget this senior year. Now, this was this was this guy's freshman year. Mm. Senior year, he graduates. He's walking across the stage. Of course, I'm there. Uh, I'm dressed in my cap in gown because all the um in addition to the professors they allowed the senior managers to also wear caps and gowns and and sit you know kind of behind and of course i had my earpiece in because you know we were i was working Mm -hmm. the commencement and he he walked across the stage and before he went to his parents he came to me Hmm. and he hugged me he goes i would not be here right now if it wasn't for you wow and then he went and saw his parents and into, for me, that was probably one of the most poignant moments when I knew that I'm the right 
person at the right time at UP. And, and, and that was just confirmation for me for, for how my philosophy and how we, how we're going to deal with our students. Mm-hmm. And it was a, uh, it was a beautiful experience. And in 2011, I was sitting in adoration and, you know, I felt God calling me to something else. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I did everything so far. I left the monastery. I got married. I, I became a deacon. What else is there? Right. <laughs> and during those of my 11 years at UP, obviously two th- September 11th happened. Mm-hmm. Several months after I joined the university, 9-11 happened. And so I was a member of the International Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. In fact, I was president of the Western Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. And I was sent to get special training at FLETC, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, and then eventually to Quantico, to the FBI Academy. And I became an anti-terrorism expert. Hmm. I ended up teaching contemporary threat assessment methodology at the Police Academy in Oregon, and eventually was named by two successive Oregon governors to the board of the Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, where I oversaw the training of police officers for the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. I also developed a plan to deal with campus shootings, with active shooter scenarios. Sure. And so I was doing a lot of that stuff, but I I felt God calling me to do a different type of threat assessment, (laughs) a threat assessment for souls. Yeah. And I was like, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I, I said, I'm very comfortable where I am right now. Sure. And I remember clear as day, the Lord saying, if you want to take your relationship with me to the next level, you got to get uncomfortable. Hmm. And I said, oh boy. Hmm. And so that started a year long process of very serious discernment. Now I had done some radio. I had done some EWTN and that was because one of my professors in graduate school is Father Mitch Pacwa. Okay. And when he heard me on Catholic Answers Live for the first time, he invited me to be on EWTN with him. Yeah. And so that started kind of the slow churn of more calls for speaking you know, so I was, I, I kind of considered the speaking kind of like my side job, kind of like my part-time thing, never considering ever doing it full-time mm-hmm. until 2011. And after a year of very serious discernment, I felt that God was calling me to leave. And again, it was my wife who confirmed the calling. And uh, it was her love that gave me the courage to follow God's will because I was scared to death mm-hmm. to, to leave and talk about Jesus, you know, but, but, uh, thanks be to God. It worked out. I left in June 30th, 2012 was my last day in law enforcement. And then July 1st, I sat in my office at home. I said, okay, Lord, I did my part. Now it's on you. Yeah. And that's when I got calls from Ignatius press to write a book. I got a call from Ascension press to be part of chosen the confirmation program. Uh-huh. Uh, Matt Pinto come. I got a call from WTN to do more stuff with them and just kind of just started snowballing from there. And, so now I travel, you know, I have five books, you know, four of them bestsellers. My latest book on the diaconate just won a national book award. Wonderful. Association of Catholic Publishers Award. You know, I travel 250,000 miles a year all over the world. Wow. Speaking. I've, I've done some amazing events and uh, around the world. I, spoke, I was one of four deacons chosen by Pope Francis to speak at the um, Year of Mercy event in Rome for deacons. Uh-huh. So it's such an honor. And uh, I, I've served now at the Vatican twice. I've deacon for Pope Francis once. Great. You know, it's just, it's, I, I never, ever would have thought that some immigrant kid from Barbados, from a broken family, could end up doing the things that I'm doing now. Sure. You know, and it's just, it's just a real blessing. And, and Notre Dame really played a big part. And I have you know, i be honest with you. I haven't really done much at ND. I've, I haven't been asked to do much on campus. Uh-huh. Uh, the last time I was there, uh, speaking as far as my professional career speaking was at the Edith Stein conference uh-huh. a couple of years ago, students before COVID, the students asked me to come in and give us a couple of talks on uh, my, my specialty was to talk about the theme of reconciliation and forgiveness in the thought of Edith Stein. Okay. So I, I went to campus and, and did that and uh, was really thrilled to be back on campus again. Yeah. Well, we're so glad to have you back in this way and to connect. Or, Of course, things probably changed a lot due to the pandemic, but I'm amazed at how much you travel and your dedication to that aspect of your vocation and ministry. How did you balance that with some of the family responsibilities and your commitment to that aspect of your vocation? 
Well, fortunately, the tr- the the big traveling stuff didn't happen till after the kids were older. So, when I was at UP, I was home. Okay. When I first started speaking, I wasn't obviously the first several years was ramping up to where I am now. I wasn't speaking nearly as much as I was. I was. I guess I was kind of building. Uh, my reputation, my my speaking repertoire, and yeah. and things like that. So I wasn't traveling nearly as much as I was then. So by the time I I started traveling, the way I am, the, the twins were juniors and seniors in high school. So so it really wasn't that bad as far as impact uh, to the family. Okay. And then you know I was able also to make enough money to keep things going at home. Yeah. Along with my wife, you know, she's a a clinical therapist, a licensed therapist in the state of Oregon. And so, yeah, so together we're able to make things work. And yeah, so it's, it's, it was, again, listening to my wife telling me when she needed to be home, you know, when it was okay for me to go, when it was okay for me to go overseas. In fact, I've brought everyone with me right. on trips. Every kid has been with me on one of my domestic trips, U.S. destinations, at least twice. Yeah. So my son has been with me twice. The twins have been with me including my wife, <laughs> has been with me several places. She likes to go to warm places during the wintertime in Oregon when it's raining all the time. So <laughs> she's smart. So everybody's been with me. They traveled with me. They've got to see what I do. So it's been, it's been a real blessing. And in fact, i be honest with you, my marriage hasn't been better since, I, since the 10 years since I left my job. Hmm. And my relationship with my kids hasn't been better yeah. than the last 10 years since I left that my job and started doing this full time. Everything got better in my marriage and family life. And so God has been so good wow. to allow me to be able to fulfill my vocation, what he's called me to, and be able to balance marriage and family life. Yeah. And the fact that you were nervous about embarking on what seemed like a risky proposition at the time, and yet over the course of these years, God has only just confirmed with his grace that this is really who he fashioned you to be. So what a gift that that must be. Yeah, I look back on it now and I say, why was I so scared? <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, when you're going through it, when you're at that point, you know, because look, a lot of people will say, okay, you're, you're, you're thinking about doing this. And, 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 I, and I'm not stupid. I mean, I had a plan. I, I, I went in adoration. I wrote down. I remember clearly writing down, okay, how did I get here right now? Like, yeah. what are all the things in my life that got me to sitting here in this adoration chapel right now, discerning leaving a 23-year career? Sure. So I, I started just writing. You know, I just started getting all my feelings out. Okay, what, what in my life has happened to get me to this point? Okay, what are the next five years going to look like? If I leave my job, what is that going to look like? So I started sketching some things out, writing things down. And that was the beginning of my discernment process. And so I leveraged some connections that I made with with people. And three of the most helpful people, quite frankly, was Father Mitch Pacwa, mm-hmm. uh, Father Larry Richards, and Patrick Madrid. Okay. I got to know those know those guys over the years from speaking part-time. And you know, we do similar speaking engagements together. And I got a chance to know them from radio and television and all that stuff. And so when I was discerning this, I, I contacted them. I said, hey, look, I think God might be calling me to go full-time into speaking. How does the, how does the model work? Can you show me like, what do the contracts look like? Mm-hmm. How, what do, how do I book flights? I mean, all, all that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know? And so they were tremendously helpful, tremendously helpful to me during that time. So it was, it was a great experience and uh, I, I still cherish those friendships to this day. Yeah. Again, another gift for you. You obviously are in high demand and the message that you carry packs a punch and I think reaches people well. Can you explain to us some of the themes of what you speak about in your ministry and how that interacts with what you really think the church needs to say to people in a modern context. Yeah, so the ma- the major themes that I talk about are basically covered in, in the books that I've written. The first one's on male spirituality. Uh, what does it mean to be an authentically Catholic man? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's extremely important in, in our culture, in our world today. And I think rediscovering authentic manhood and and the the theme of my book was developing an understanding of male spirituality rooted in the anthropology 
of of Pope John Paul II. Sure. And also in St. Paul's Theology of the Cross. Okay. And how men can really live their spirituality when they see themselves on the cross of Jesus Christ. Just like Christ broke himself open and poured himself out in love. I think men can, when they break themselves open and pour themselves out in love for their wife and families, for the church, if they're a priest, or even as a witness to the culture as a single man, uh, living their spirituality can make a tremendous impact. Because when we when we rediscover authentic manhood, we can, re, we can start rebuilding families. And we, we have strong families, we have a strong church. We have a strong church, we take back this culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. Another theme in my uh, in my writings, I, I wrote uh, about Father Augustus Tolton, sure, the first black priest in the United States. So I, I the book wasn't about his life. There's already book uh, another book out about his life. My book was about lessons we can learn from his life. Okay, how we can apply them in in our in our life today. So his example of overcoming adversity, the power of prayer, again building strong families overcoming racial division, all those kinds of things, mm-hmm. I, I think were important themes I, I developed in that book uh, as well. The book on the diaconate, you know, th- that uh, came out uh, earlier this year, exploring really the the role of deacons, especially in their ministry of service, uh, both within and outside of parish life. Mm-hmm. The, the book is also good for lay people to understand the diaconate. It's not just, oh, that guy that's on the altar every Sunday. Yeah. There's so much more depth to what the Aqua ministry is all about. And most of the books were written for deacons. So I decided to, to write something for the that's accessible, that's a, a source, a resource for deacons, but also for the person in the pew as well. Sure. And my latest book, which is coming out next year from Ignatius Press, is called Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism, hmm. where, where I make the case that I think the Catholic Church can take the, the lead Mm-hmm. in helping to ameliorate racism in, in the church and in our culture. And I, I lay out, a, a, well, I talk about the history of racism in the church and all that kind of stuff. And, and But I also lay out a plan of how the church, from a grassroots perspective, I think from the parish level, can really take the lead. So for once, the culture is looking at the church and say, hey, look at what the Catholic church is doing. Mm. You know, let, let's follow their lead. And so that's going to be out next year. I'm really excited for for that book to to come out. Yeah, very timely topic, certainly. And it definitely touches on this theme of forgiveness, which is so central to our faith and the sin of racism and the forgiveness that we need to seek as a culture and find together, but also in your personal life. As you mentioned, you didn't grow up in the best of circumstances, and probably some of the forgiveness that you had to work through with your dad and the outcome of your parents' divorce. What role has forgiveness played in your life, and how do you think it can be instrumental in helping us heal our culture? Yeah, so one of the things that happened with my dad is I didn't talk to him for 18 years. Okay. When I joined the monastery, he was extremely upset. Yeah. Uh, that I guess that that's an understatement <laughs> to the point where I, I consider him dead to me. Wow. And I didn't speak to him for 18 years. I mean, my, my own sister's wedding, I walked her down the aisle, hmm. you know, cause he, he didn't, he didn't show up for that. So I even told the kids that he was dead when they asked about their grandfather. Hmm. And so what turned things around was at 74 years old, my father saw me for the first time on EWTN. Okay. And then a year after that is when he when he contacted me and we started talking and, you know, forgiveness. Basically, I have a a, a talk about this called Rich in Mercy, and it's about really finding healing in God's divine mercy. Mm -hmm. And so for my dad, the healing took place over a number of years because you just don't heal 40 something years of stuff, you know, in, in, in a weekend. Sure. You know, but it was, it started when I went back to New Jersey and saw him for the first time in 18 years and, and saw that he was starting to turn, having a heart, having a heart for faith. Mm-hmm. And from watching, of all things, Mother Angelica, like I, I still am shocked to this day how this old nun with a Bible on her lap could have, <laughs> have affected my father. I mean, my father, he enjoyed, um, womenizing, you know, I guess I would say. And mm-hmm. He has about 15 other children from other women. Wow. Besides the four, my mom. 
Yeah. And he drank and I mean and so I mean it was just it was really hard but but how this how Mother Angelica got to my dad to a man like that. Yeah. He just just blew me away. And he really eventually came to sincere faith. Wow. And actually on his deathbed and I was uh, blessed to be there with my siblings uh, when he died. Uh, but before I got there, I told my brother to, g- to get him anointed. And um, he ended up being anointed by one of the monks from the abbey. So hmm. <laughs> how, how God turned that around, right? It was uh, the monastery that tore us apart in, and it was a monk from the abbey who on his deathbed anointed him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was an incredible journey. But one of the things that I did with my dad was I asked him to forgive me for hating him for 18 years. Okay. Yeah, people so people say, wait a minute, why'd you do that? He was the one, it was his yeah. fault. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not the way to think about it. Yeah, that's not the way to think about it. I mean, when you look at the divine mercy image, the rays are coming out from the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and so Jesus is asking us to be vehicles of mercy in the lives of others. And that's what he asked me to do for, for my dad. And I think that's the, the real secret to, to finding healing. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's really a beautiful image and it couldn't have been easy obviously to work through some of those things but what a blessing for you to see in some ways the full circle of God's forgiveness in in the life of your dad and I think it gives all of us hope that if there's a relationship or a person who may not be as close to God as we would like that we can just stay faithful to that life of prayer for them and kindness towards them. And who knows what the grace of God might be able to accomplish in their life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The problem is, especially coming out of COVID, there's a lot of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, my bad story and, and uh, how healing and mercy and forgiveness can really help people give people hope again. Yeah. You know, that's one of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And love obviously conquers all, triumphs over all. And as John says in 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And he who lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. You know, so the more we empty ourselves of all those things that separate us from God's love, the more we open our hearts to his love, the more we receive the gifts of his mercy, the more we're able to be vehicles of mercy in the lives of others. It's because when we give ourselves away in love, is when we truly find ourselves in God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the key, the whole key for, for uh, joy in life and happiness, because you can't be happy till you first find joy. And when we alleviate the heaviness from our hearts, when we allow God to take the burden of, of anger and resentment out of our hearts, then we're free actually to love. We're no longer bound by the slavery of our emotions and memories from the past. We're now free to love as God has called us to love. And, and that's how we truly find joy in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that very much is a message of hope. So thank you for offering that to us. One more question about the diaconate, and then we'll turn to holiness as our last topic. Can you explain to those who might be less familiar the purpose of the diaconate and how deacons can be a gift to the church and, and her ministry? Yeah, so there's a threefold ministry of threefold hierarchy when it comes to uh, holy orders, and so holy orders is grouped with the the two sacraments at the service of communion. That's matrimony and holy orders, and so holy orders exist to serve the church, mm-hmm. right? Because headship and leadership and authority is rooted in service, which is why Jesus washed the feet of the apostles in John's gospel. You know, not the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John's gospel, Jesus washes their feet. To, show, to give them the model uh, of how they're supposed to uh, lead the church by serving the church. And so you have the bishops, and the bishops are in charge of everything, and they have two main jobs, to facilitate communion, to bring people around the, the sacramental life of the church, especially the Eucharist and the sacrament of reconciliation. And then he's also supposed to evangelize, and that's where the deacons come in, to, to help the bishop with his ministry of evangelization, of helping people encounter the life-changing news of Jesus Christ. So both those roles, uh, obviously we're, we're not priests, we're not, you know, and there's two forms of the diaconate. There's a transitional diaconate, mm-hmm. the men who are in seminaries who are ordained deacons from six months to a year before they're ordained priests, and then men like myself in the, in the permanent diaconate. 
um, who re- who are ordained and remain deacons to, to serve the church. Mm-hmm. And so the ministry of the diaconate, I think, is is really important in, in the life of the church today, especially because think about priests are in, are in parishes. Their job is not to be in the trenches you know, from from Saturday to, to, the, to the next Sunday. That's where the deacons come in. Our job is to bring the news of Jesus Christ, the, the life-changing news with Jesus Christ to the broken, to the homeless, to the fallen away Catholics, to the youth who are leaving the church in droves, to people who have left the church because of some tragic situation and, and they blame God for it. Mm. You know, to, to bring the message of hope and healing and mercy into the world through the witness of our ministry as a permanent sign and witness of, of the servant ministry of Christ to the world. And then to bring those people when they're ready to bring them to the healing ministry of the priest, just like the, the, the friends brought the paralytic on a stretcher to Jesus. Right. You know, they, they cut a hole in the roof and lowered Jesus down. And the same is true uh, with, with the deacons. We, our job is to bring that message into the world and then bring people to the healing ministry of the priest back to the church, back to the sacraments. And, and so uh, I think there's a tremendous need in the church for deacons right now um, to do that. So deacons just can't serve in a parish. If deacons are just serving in the parish, they're, they're only living half of their diaconal ministry. They're not really living fully their vocation. Because let's be real, the people who need the message are not in church. Right. And, and that's the people that we need to reach with the gospel. Well, thank you for sharing that and for being a part of that ministry, really going out and finding the lost sheep of the culture as Christ did in his time. And as we turn to our final topic of holiness, it strikes me that you have already discussed a lot of people, often by name, who have really been models of holiness to you. But who comes to mind as you think about those who have led you on your own path to holiness? Well, first of all, um, we talk about holiness. You know, Jesus says that we must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And the word there in Greek is tilios, or also a taumim in Hebrew, which means mature, whole, and complete. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean without error, because there's no way that we can, (laughs) Jesus be perfect, like (laughs) be without error or mistake. There's no way we can do that. What he means is to be mature, whole, and complete in our faith. Yeah. And that's really the path to holiness. You know, because I, I look at my life as a 20, as a 26 year old. Now I look at my life as a 56 year old and I'm definitely at a different level of holiness, a different level of maturity and wholeness and completeness in my faith journey with God. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you learn from life experience. You learn from the school of hard knocks. You grow more deeply in love uh, with your faith. As you mature, you begin to have perspective and understanding and, and you begin to see more clearly what God is doing and how God is working in your life. And, and so the people that have helped me, I think in my journey to holiness is definitely my mom, for sure. Mm-hmm. Again, she is the model for me for service and sacrifice and holiness, uh, without, without doubt. She's number one. And then I, then I talk about the men that were in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Tove, you know, my, my scoutmaster was Jewish. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, but just to see how, how much he loved us and sacrifice his time to be with us and and um the success that i've had in life I, I think can be attributed to men like him and to my like my wrestling coach mr d piano and to and to father mark Payne and so many others who have been witnesses of, of god's holiness in my life and then of course my wife mm-hmm. the, the sacrifices that she's made to enable me to be able to do what god has called me to do to travel around the world and and while she's home maintaining things and that that's really been a great blessing. And of course, for me, this is also saints, the deacon saints, you know, Vincent, mm-hmm. Ephraim uh, from the Eastern Church, uh, Lawrence, you know, the martyr, St. Francis of Assisi, who founded the Franciscans, and, and Stephen, one of the seven deacons mentioned in Acts chapter six, one of the first seven deacons ordained and the first person to die for faith in Jesus, the, the proto-martyr. Sure. We, uh, we celebrate him on uh, December 26th. All of those men and women help, I think, really form me and shape me into the person that I am today. And what I've learned over the years is that 
my past helped shape me into the person I am today, mm-hmm. but my past does not determine my future. Mm. A deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ determines my future. In fact, that determines who I am. You know, we live in a culture where we allow the culture, where people are allowing the culture to shape and form who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, cult- cultural construction, they call it. So you, you allow your political affiliation, your age, your, your gender. And that's why all this gender fluidity and confusion is happening now because people are turning away from God and trying to turn toward the self to find meaning. Hmm. And ultimately, they'll never find it apart from God because God has created a space in us for him. You know, and so when people say, you're a black Catholic, I say, well, I'm a Catholic who's black. Hmm. You know, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, when I stand before Jesus Christ, when I die, he's not going to ask me how black I am. He's going to ask me, did you, how well did you use the talents that I gave you? I gave you the talents of fatherhood, being a husband and being a deacon. Uh Where's my... 50-fold, 100-fold return. Yeah. That's good determines who I am. Now, that doesn't mean I I, 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 don't, I reject my, my Caribbean heritage, my ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Not by a long shot. I love my heritage. I love our food, our music. I still speak our dialect. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but those things don't define who I am. My relationship with Jesus Christ and, and living out the gospel, that defines who I am. And so the, the other things to me are icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. You know, how I express myself, how I be able to witness to the faith, those are influenced by my ethnicity and background, by who I am. I am a, a son of the living God, a brother of Christ by, ado- by adoption. Mm-hmm. And, and that is that determines who I am. And that, to me, is the the what i call the hermeneutic of holiness huh, right <laughs> you know uh that that's the the interpretive key how i understand and interpret holiness is through the lens of seeing myself as a loyal son of the living god yeah well that's beautiful as you have gone through your life you have mentioned adoration and prayer and journaling and different things what have been some of the practices that are especially effective for you as you continue to Seek holiness to be close to that call of being an adopted son of God. Well, obviously, f- first and foremost is my prayer life, right? So I have a routine that I follow on a daily basis. I get up at 5 a.m. Well, early. If this is on non-travel days. Yeah. So I get up at 5 a.m. and I spend the first hour in prayer. So I do the divine office and I pray the entire office Every day, so matins and lauds in the morning, or what do you call it now? Um, office of readings and morning prayer. I, I don't, I don't like those terms. I actually like the monastic terms better. <laughs> so, uh, mat, yeah, matins and lauds, and then a rosary, and then I go to the gym to do my weight training, and then I do cardio for another hour after that, and then I start my day, mm-hmm. which is usually writing. Uh, I write for several publications, so I have articles and deadlines I have to meet. Um, editing my my latest book for Ignatius Press developing new talks. I developed three new talks during the pandemic, mm-hmm. planning for upcoming speaking engagements. And I also have different business ventures that I'm part of that I'm, I manage those. And then throughout the day, I intersperse, you know, Chaplet of Divine Mercy and, you know, uh, a number of other prayers, you know, uh, Terse, Sector Known, one of those three, mm-hmm. and Vespers in the evening. Uh, I also pray the uh, Memorare every day. I pray a prayer to St. Joseph every day. I pray the surrender novena Mm -hmm. and i also pray a prayer to the blessed mother to help me grow closer to jesus in the blessed sacrament of the eucharist Mm. and so and then compline at the end before bed so all throughout the day i'm constantly engaging in 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 god with god and when i fly i also uh, on the plane i do lectio divina you know instead of looking at a movie or or something like that I'll, i'll just pull out the bible do some lectio uh, well, I'll focus on a passage of scripture and kind of immerse myself in that passage and uh, see myself in my life in the pages of the scriptures. You know, that free, that's what Lectio Divina is all about. Adoration is key, absolutely key, Eucharistic adoration. Mm-hmm. The time for silence, to really hear God speaking. Psalm 46, verse 11 says, Be still and know that I am God. And the word know there in Hebrew is Yauda. That means knowledge that is gained by experience. So, um, you can translate that, be still and experience God, hmm. right? In the stillness and the silence and the quiet, because that's where God speaks to your heart, speaks to your life, 
speaks to your situation and to your needs is in the silence. So to embrace silence is, I absolutely love that Eucharistic adoration. And to just go there and say, okay, God, now what, you know, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's next? You know, uh, do I, where do where do you, where do you want me to, to be now? You know, always being open to where God wants to lead me and where the Holy Spirit takes me, you know, and I, and I also do that in my speaking too. I write all my homilies in adoration. So every mm-hmm. homily you ever give, you ever heard me give has been written in adoration mm-hmm. before the Lord. Cause I want to make sure it's not what Deacon Harold wants to say. I want to make sure it's what Christ wants to say through the instrument of Deacon Harold. So, yeah, so those are really the the main, and prayer with my wife, of course, you know, praying every day, even if it's just for a couple minutes, um, that's fine. You know, making that deeper spiritual connection with her is very important. So, yeah, so all of it comes together and again, helps me to continue to, to move, to move forward, to continue to open myself deeply to, to everything that God wants to do in my life for, for his honor, for his glory. Well, that's so encouraging and inspiring to so many of us who will be listening to this conversation on the podcast. So thank you for giving us that advice. And just thank you for your ministry of reaching people in such a dynamic way as a speaker, as a permanent deacon. And thank you as well for taking the time to talk with me today. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I did too. You're, you're most welcome and uh, honored and blessed to be uh, part of this is part of the Notre Dame family as an alum. It's great to be back and contributing to the spiritual life of the campus. Well, great. Thanks so much, Deacon Harold. That concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indeed podcast. Again, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast, to share it with others, to rate it if you enjoyed it, as well as to subscribe to our Faith Indeed Daily Gospel Reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. We thank you for joining us today, and until next time, you'll be in our prayers. God bless you.